open the word tonight, you could turn to Exodus 20. It's very simple. As you read it in verse 15, You recognize that God has spoken and then by his finger has engraved on two tablets of stone ten words. So, in the word, davarim, words or commandments, the same, depending on the context, we can um, translate it either way. And so, sometimes it's okay if you want to say ten words, ten commandments. But only two words in the Hebrew, just a simple prohibition, you shall not steal. And every Israelite that would have heard this would have heard this as though God was speaking directly to him. In the Hebrew, it's in the masculine singular, like me pointing to one person and when saying, just if I can illustrate this, Glenn, do not do this, or Glenn, do this. That's how they would have heard this. It's very helpful, too, as we return to the Ten Commandments that we remember uh, the words of that Puritan as we think of the law and we think of love, that we remember this, that as a Puritan said, law is love's eyes and without it, love is blind. But then he said, love though is law's heart and without it, law is dead. That's very helpful. And so as we look at this eighth commandment on the second tablet of the law, we recognize that this is not the way to obtain acceptance with God. In fact, in the prologue, God says to the Israelites, you're a saved people. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So the prologue to the Ten Commandments, this God proclaiming these ten words, God writing with his very finger, if you will, on two tablets of stone, ten words, the first and second in the tenth to deal with the heart and the state of our hearts, the third, not taking God's name in vain. And the ninth, you shall not, not lie, dealing with our very words. And then the fourth, if you've ever seen this, the fourth through the eighth, actually dealing with our actions. First, second, and tenth. It's like a, it's chiastic in structure. First, second, and tenth, something to deal with our hearts. Third and ninth, the words of our mouth. And then fourth through eighth, the actual actions, the works of our hands. But these commands, these commandments, these words are to be received then as an expression of God's character and what he's like, but also our will. As Wesley noted last Sunday night, Paul points out that a very important and revealed in the New Testament purpose of the law is to act as a tutor to be pushing us towards Christ when we realize that we could not keep it, that we are undone. It was like Paul who says in Romans 7, he sees his commandment, you shall not covet the 10th commandment. And then it's like no matter where he looked, he realized when he saw that commandment, it served 
He says, it produced in me coveting of all types. And we know in a sense, not really we mean by produce, it revealed. It's like that commandment shone this light in every nook and cranny of Paul's heart so that he realized he was eaten up with coveting. That's the purpose of the law, to reveal God's character, to show us the way of obedience as will. But third, to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. But fourthly, and this is really shown in the, in the larger catechism, and we don't think about this too much. One of the benefits of the law for the Christian is to show us how much gratitude we have for Christ and to Christ for his keeping of the law. For he's done what you and I were not and are not able to do. Our best obedience, our best righteousness, we would read in the prophets, is as what? Filthy rags. Now praise God, our obedience, because of Christ, is then made acceptable to him. Not because of us, but because of him. And so tonight as we come to this Eighth Commandment, Part 2, you'll notice Bruce Inc.'s artwork up there, the guy running away with a sack of money. And that's really illustrative of this commandment, but it's not completely comprehensive. But it's, it's a great start. So let me ask you this. Have you ever thought, I'm a taker, but I'm not a giver? Now, I'm not asking you if you've ever thought that of another person. I'm asking you to think about you. And I'm going to do the same for a moment. When you think, in this moment, am I filled with self-interest? It's where you have that sudden realization that your self-interest is taking over and taking control. You want what you want. Someone said the heart wants what it wants. And you've just got to have what you want. And you place you before others. And in that moment, you're acting out this priority of being a taker rather than a giver. Being a consumer rather than a contributor. And ever since the fall, we have a tendency to look out for ourselves first. Not loving our neighbors we should by desiring, taking, or misusing what is theirs and not ours. Even in sports, in soccer, and in basketball, we speak of a ball hog. Someone who will not give up the ball, who just has to kick, put the goal in the back of the net, who has to have the ball and take all the shots, all right? And ever since that fall, there's that tendency But because God is so generous, and here's our big idea for tonight, we may take our cue from him about our property and our neighbor's property and our possessions. His generosity is our cue. And so we recognize that we cannot give ourselves away. We cannot give what is ours to a point of poverty. Now, don't take that statement to an illogical conclusion. Obviously, If you wrote a check or give away every single thing you ever had, then at that moment, you would be penniless. But the point is that we may, 
as we look at the Eighth Commandment and we see this, these simple words, you shall not steal, just four words in the English, two in Hebrew, that we need not fear imitating God in his generosity. And as an application, moms and dads, for a moment with your children, what a great way to give a picture of their heavenly father to express this generosity with your children, with your time, your talent, and treasure, rather than being really persnickety or being overly frugal with them where we communicate a picture about God that's not what he's like, okay? So last week we began part one of our two messages on this commandment by asking this question, who owned the first property? One of the kids answered. So I want to ask, who owned the first property? Very good. Someone said Adam last week, and I would say that's partly true. Adam, as God's vice regent, the first Adam, as God's vice regent, you might say was entrusted with the garden. And so in that sense, you could say he did own that. But the answer is God And the truth is that God made everything by the word of his power and out of nothing, literally ex nihilo, and so he claims ownership over everything. He says in Psalm 24, I want to read this again from last week, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so I want to give you again, as we'll fill this sermon out, a basic outline for tonight's message. And we'll get into this. Number one, the basis for the commandment. You might know that last week between two uh, testimonies for membership and communion, I was short a little bit on time. So I had to speed through that. And so tonight we're going to finish that. But number one, I want us to see the basis for the commandment. Basis. Number two, the essence or the principle of the commandment. And by essence, it's like the fragrance, what's there. I was telling Cheryl, yesterday we went to the Y, and I walked into the men's, uh, the men's shower room, and someone had used probably the world's best smelling body, uh, like, you know, whatever. So I was overwhelmed with this fragrance. I almost just wanted to stay in the bathroom and not go out and uh, do my workout. But anyway, it just smelled so good. The fragrance of the bathroom was just like, great. All right, the third thing, not only do we want to see the basis of the commandment or the essence, and that's the obedience required by this commandment, and then to see the heart of the commandment, the heart of the commandment, at the heart, and then fifth, will be a number of applications around the Eighth Commandment. And then finally, will be gospel hope for those who have stolen. Those of us, when we realize, you know, we have not loved God or our neighbor as ourself by the way we have responded to this word from the Scripture. So number one, the basis for the commandment. Don't make this complicated. The basis for the Eighth Commandment is found in God, specifically in God's generosity. And for God gives us a cue for how we will steward, how we will procure, protect both our own property 
And by that I mean stuff, our possessions, our belongings, and our neighbors. All right? So if we fail to see God as God first and central and glorious in all things, as the fountain of all goodness and love and blessing, the very God of whom Jamie, Pastor Jamie preaching this morning, in those first five verses of Revelation 21, you think about the water of the rivers of life flowing through the midst of the city, and on both sides these trees bearing fruit. That's the picture of the goodness and the largesse of God. If we miss God and God in his generosity, then we'll miss the biblical basis of this commandment that seems on the surface only prohibitive. You shall not steal. But for every commandment that prohibits something implicitly, there's a whole litany of things that it requires, a whole list. There's the basis for the commandment. Second, I want to speak of the essence or the principle of this commandment. And the essence of this is that property, stuff, material possessions, things, and even things that are less tangible. For example, let's say that little gourd or pumpkin. For example, if you invent something and you hire an attorney called a patent attorney, then you own the rights to what? That design. It doesn't appear very tangible, like, oh, here's a piece of paper, but you own that. That's yours. You own that, and that is yours, okay? So whether it's tangible or intangible, This commandment implies that property, the ownership of property, is valid and proper. And I know as you look at that picture, I like how his face is red and the money is green. You see that? I think it's pretty good. The illustration has a thief running off with a bag of money, but the Eighth Commandment has much more in view than stealing and running off with something that is not yours, okay? It's more than that, but it's no less than this, that if something is yours, then it's not hers. If something is hers, then it means it's not his. And that's, that's, not, un, that's not selfish to say that. That's why if you have a title that says you own your home, then you own it. And this commandment implies that, and there's no embarrassment by that. I want us to look next at the obedience that's required by this commandment. And it's that we are never to take, so I want to, we're going to get very specific tonight. This is not like 30,000 feet. Very specific, applied theology. The obedience that's required, and kids, this is what I want to do. My thing is, if we, if I preach this at your level What we're hoping is that all of us adults can reach high up enough and get it at the level we give it to you. That's our hope, okay? So, the obedience that's required in the Eighth Commandment is that we are never to take or misuse what is ours or our neighbor's. We're to never to take 
use or misuse what is ours or a neighbor's. Obviously, if it's ours, we already have it. And as we said a moment ago, if something is theirs, then it is not ours. And if it is ours, then it is not theirs. And that is not selfishness. That's valid. That's valid. In fact, one of the applications from Ephesians 4.28 by Charles Hodge, on those words it says, let the thief Let the one who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his own hands that he might have something to share with the one who has needs. One of the applications that Charles Hodge gives of that is this. If you're not willing to work, you're not entitled to what? Eat. But if you're not able to work, Everyone who can has a communal responsibility within the body of Christ to help you. That's how that works together. It's not simply, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Charles Hodge says the gospel broadens that to if there's someone within our body that is not able to provide for themselves then those of us who have productive capacity take not just surplus, but even a sacrificial dimension and we give for those who are not able to provide for themselves. But as we speak of the obedience required by this commandment, what we realize is if something is person A's, it's not B. It's not B's. If it's B's, that means it's not A's. Otherwise, the commandment does not make sense. If everything is common property, then stealing would be a non-thing. And I'm not saying there aren't things that aren't common property. But for example, we, we enjoy this space as common property as a church. But as I look out, I see about 15 packages with 15 different names. And so if your name is not on a package, guess what you don't do? Don't take it. Now, Enzo, you could take Ellie's tonight if she'll be on. Feel free to do that. But that's it. Not for you, for her, okay? That's the application. But the obedience required by the Eighth Commandment is more than simply not taking what is not ours. It's positively giving what is ours. Freely, generously, sacrificially, hilariously. So gospel obedience to this commandment is not only that we do not steal, but much more we give abundantly and selflessly in imitation of our heavenly Father's generosity. Now we come to the heart of the commandment. So we've seen, right? We've seen the basis of for the commandment. We've seen the essence of the commandment. We've seen the obedience required by this commandment. We come now to the heart of it. And that is that this commandment is about both the heart and the hands. Yes, naturally, we think of the hands when we say, do not take what is not yours. But at the heart of this commandment is the heart. As we say in biblical counseling, the heart of the matter is the matter of the what? Heart. Okay. 
So theft or stealing is first a matter of the heart and then only after the passage of time do you and I move from thinking, heart-level desiring, planning, to actually stealing from another person. And conversely, it takes a gospel-renewed, spirit-filled heart that's intent on giving rather than taking to go from feeling, thinking, endeavoring, desiring, planning to give what has been ours and to relinquish it to another. And it's as varied as giving away a book. Some of you know I do this. I have this app on my phone with all the books I've lent out. But I told Cheryl I'm getting old and I don't care if they come back anymore. I'm not going to worry about it. When I die and when you die, how many books are you taking with you? None. All right? And that's not to be sloppy, but I've learned to trust. If coffee gets spilt on a book or a a, a a page gets torn or it doesn't get returned, I just trust the Lord with that, okay? But this giving is as varied as giving away a book, delivering a 13 by 9 pan of macaroni and cheese and not getting the dish back or even a thank you card for how good it was, okay? It's as varied as gifting an extra car that you no longer truly need. You're paying insurance on it. It's sitting there, but the last I checked, no person can drive but one car at a time, okay? Or even relinquishing a prime hour of time when you give another person your undivided attention and care. None of these are on loan. You give them with no attention of the person returning what you've given to them. It's like you should have this stamp that when you give something to someone, you really give it, you say, you stamp it, and it says, on permanent loan. No need to return. I want to move to the application of this commandment now. There's great breadth here, both to our affections and our actions. And now, I want to repeat, we're trying to make this practical, kids, so I'm going to ask Children, this just for a moment. If you're under 18, you just look just like. Do we obey God's commandments and keep his commandments so that God will love us? Or do we keep his commandments because he has loved us? Who wants to answer? It's okay. Don't be afraid. Because he loves us. Is that the answer? Yeah. Yeah. Because he loves us. This love for our neighbor is in response to God's love for us. So let's remember that as we apply the Eighth Commandment. And I want you to think both of our affection, about our affections and our actions. I think some of you know, I, I think I used this illustration Sunday morning. It's like when maybe an appropriate tip is about, say, six or seven dollars and you only have a 10 in your wallet, and part of you is thinking, should I just give up the 10 and bless this person, or should I ask for a five and five ones and be really precise? 
And I think the gospel has a way of giving us a generosity where we give tens and don't ask for fives and five ones. That's what it looks like. That's a starting point. But I want to apply this to stealing, and I want you to, I'm going to make this very specific here. So here's the principle. Under no circumstances are we to take what is not ours, either covertly, that is secretly, or by force, which is robbery. And that's stealing. Either way, in secret or by force, it's stealing. And by stealing, we may directly take, it's when we directly take what is another's, or where we do not deliver what is promised. And so let me illustrate this and think about um, maybe someone delivering something to your house. I remember growing up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, back in the mid-60s, we had a milkman. Did anyone ever grow up with someone delivering milk to your house? You, you maybe know what that's like. Okay, you've had that experience. And they would come, and I don't even remember the details, except we had this very friendly milkman. Um, I feel like it was Bob, Bob the milkman, let's just say for the moment. But the idea is, and now, but I want to make it, I want to, instead of milk, I want to think of meat. And let's say you've promised to deliver 10 pounds of beef tenderloin, you're a, you're a beef delivery man, not milk. And you've promised to deliver it by noon this Friday, December the 2nd, at a price of $8 a pound. So you promised to this family 10 pounds of beef tenderloin at $8 a pound. That's $80 by noon this Friday, December 2nd. Everyone's clear. It's going to be maybe Venmo or cash or some cash app. But everyone's clear by noon. And part of the reason you want it, you've got a huge family gathering and you're providing the meat and you're, you're depending on that. If you intentionally delay the delivery where you're slack, we're not talking about a providential happening where you just, it was impossible for you to deliver it, or you reduce the promised amount, you show up with seven pounds with no explanation, no rational reason, and you just expect the person to accept that you sh- you're shorting them. They were expecting 10. You brought seven. Or you seek to raise the price. You show up with the 10. And you say, really, I need $10 a pound and not eight. And unless you give me $100 and not 80, I'm not leaving the meat with you. Those are unfaithful dealings in business Those are a measure of stealing. Another application from last week is when you know that you could name your price for something even more than a market rate, and you do so. To charge $1,200 for something that at market rate is $1,000 is stealing. It is, in effect, to take advantage of another person's trust. So we keep our word If it's 10 pounds at noon on Friday at $8 a pound, then we keep it. That's what the Apostle James has in mind when he writes in James 5 and verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes 
and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What about time? What about time? I have a question. Do you steal others' time by being habitually late? Not only is habitual lateness inconsiderate, frankly, it is stealing. It is stealing something intangible and non-repeatable another person's time. So I'd ask this question, is your time more important than others? Or by your punctuality, do you communicate to the other person, I value your time more than I value my own? What about taking care of others' property or possessions? How do you treat others' possessions? Like your own? Better than your own. And I want to apply this very specifically. An application of the Eighth Commandment is that we are considerate in how, what we, how we use what is commonly owned or given for our temporary use. I'm going to give you three illustrations. When we go out to eat, we don't trash the place and make the cleanup inordinately difficult for the server where we leave a $5 tip and we leave them with a $50 cleanup job. Or we spend the night in a hotel. We don't trash the place and make the cleanup inordinately difficult for housekeeping where the housekeeper wants to say to management, don't let that person ever stay here again. Even our own sanctuary, how we use this on the Lord's day when we gather for worship. We're to endeavor to leave it as clean or better than we found, than we found it. Some of you might be surprised, but we have about 4%, 3 or 4% of our budget is dedicated to housekeeping for janitorial work. But let's not make that more difficult for those that do it. Let's leave this place better than we find it. Now, I want to give you a warning. This is not legalism. This is practical, thoughtful, unselfish love for one another. And it's only possible by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To with joyful heart and integrity deliver 10 pounds of tenderloin by noon on Friday and only expect the promised price To leave a restaurant and not trash your table, but to be considerate of the server or the, or the, 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 the person that's going to bust the table, to think about a hotel room or even our own space here, that is not legalism to care to do that. That's practical love for our neighbor. Love, we read in the scriptures, does no harm to a neighbor. And so, so to love this way is growth in grace. To love this way is progress in holiness from a heart that knows no limits to God's giving heart in Christ. Now, I want to bring this to another thing. What about borrowing? And I'm not talking about neighbors who have, some of you have neighbors where you'll just go in each other's garage and and borrow something and there's like no explanation, just know you need to return it. I'm talking about you're not to borrow another person's property without prior permission. 
And it doesn't matter if you plan to return it. Related to borrowing, we are to return what we borrow in an agreed upon period of time. And if you've borrowed something, don't wait for the other person to contact you and ask you to return it. Return what is borrowed in a reasonable period of time or as agreed. I want to talk about other person's property for a moment. Where we're in the position sometimes to give it away or to use it, and it seems innocent enough. We're not to give away what is another's without their prior permission, all right? We're not to give away what is another's without their prior permission. Now, recently, someone stayed in our house. We weren't there. And they were coming to church here, and they needed a dress shirt and realized they didn't have one. And so they went into my closet and took it without prior permission. Now, I was fine about that because it was my son. Okay, it was our son. That's no problem. We have to understand those relationships, okay? And we were happy to do that. But kids, let me mention this rule now, just quickly, for some of you who are starting to write papers or give speeches. Don't use someone's writings. Don't use something that someone has said without giving proper credit. Some of you were here this morning. Pastor Jamie quoted, you quoted a commentator, Dennis Johnson, on Revelation 21. And he said, so-and-so, Dennis Johnson said this. And so Pastor Jamie, in that moment, he didn't steal. He gave proper credit to that person's work. It's to steal. To use someone's work without citing it is to steal it. So if you are growing up, as you begin to write papers and do schoolwork, you want to do that. Don't represent to your mom or your dad or your teachers that what is another person's work is actually your own. There's a final application that I want to give, and that's the area of giving and generosity. And so I I want to speak to this. There's lots of applications, whether it's giving to our own church to support the budget that we all voted on as members. If you were here in our two congregational meetings last month, or it's 106 families in famine-stricken Turkana and Pocock counties in northwest Kenya. When once we've known and we've tasted of God's grace in Christ, We can give freely and generously of what we have. I'm so excited. Do some of you, do you know that last year we gave 17, we we devoted 17% of our budget to missions. And this year our deacons provided leadership to push us up where I think that number is closer to 19%. From 17 to 19% to increase. Think about, some of you think, man, I'd love to give 10%. And then maybe you can think, and I'd love to get 12 or 15 or 20 or some point. You come to the point where maybe you think, I can give 30 or 40% to, to advance the cause of the gospel and help God's people. Here's the thing. We will not fear of giving ourselves into a state of poverty or lacking. I want to point out to you, turn with me to Psalm 112.
This is speaking of the righteous. It says wealth and riches are in his house, verse 3. He's gracious, in verse 4, he's gracious, merciful, and righteous. He deals generously, verse 5, in lens. He's not afraid of bad news, verse 7. Look at verse 9. And what you want to understand, Paul quotes this in 2 Corinthians to commend the Corinth church. He says, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Now hold that, or just move from that. Turn to Luke 6. This is Luke cobbling together much of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. Luke 6, 37 through 38. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgiven you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down. Shaken together. Running over. Will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use. It will be measured back to you. My friends, do not fear of giving yourself into a state of poverty or to a place of lacking. And Paul was in this mindset when he gave his final address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He said he did not need to covet anyone's silver or gold. He could work with his own hands and supply, and actually he speaks of ministering with his own hands. Ministering with his own hands to supply his own necessities as well as those who are with him. And so can you and I. Like the thief in Ephesians 4.28, to whom Paul says, Let the one who steals steal no longer. We may work and give out of our productivity to others, not just on the margin, but even to where it hurts, sacrificially, to others, to those in need and to the common needs of our body and to the advance of the gospel. We may extract money from this present, econ- from this present econ- economy to advance God's cause among the nations. And so we have a benevolence fund as a church. And occasionally we have members who lack and are in material need. And for our church, the church's purse is in the hands of our deacons. And they have the responsibility to distribute that to those who are in need. But we may give to that. And our network of churches, right, has received a request from Trinity Baptist Church to help 106 families in Turkana and Pocot families to have sufficient food for six months, $50 per family. So 106 families times $300 is $31,800. For 57 churches in our network, it's about $560 per church. And for us, with 70 member couples or individuals, that's about $8. Take a 10 Ask for a five and five ones and keep two ones and take the other eight and stick it in there and say, for Kenya famine. 
relief? What would it look like for us to express such love and generosity? Not too hard, hardly sacrificial for us. I would bet that most of us have eight dollars and quarters, dimes, nickels, and pennies in our home or between our seats in our cars. I want to close. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. I want us to think of gospel hope for those who have stolen. It's those, that moment when you've realized you charged someone too much. You didn't deliver as promised. You borrowed something so long that the person from whom you borrowed it died. And now you can't return it. And you realize there's no way to actually repent from your borrowing it too long. Or you realize you really, you got a day's wage, but you realize you think you kind of dogged it. You didn't, give a, you didn't give a day's effort and hard work for that day's wage. So I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 6. Just imagine as the church at Corinth was hearing this manuscript was unrolled the papyrus and was read for the first time or even the the church at Ephesus and they're all looking at each other and when Paul says let the thieves steal no longer and everyone's like hey who's the thief around here some are immediately are covering up not me not me but what about 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 Paul's very plain do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunken, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty comprehensive, but it's not exhaustive. And the point is, as the Apostle John would say in 1 John, that if we go on sinning with no desire to turn from our sin and pursue righteousness, then we have no claim to heaven. We have no claim of Christ. Because Christ came to save us from our sin, not to allow us to remain happy in it. But Paul can say, such were some of you. Look right there. And such were some of you. Verse 11. Some of you know this from last week. That word but there is the strongest way to express but in contrast. Such were some of you. You were in that list. You were in the list from whom you would, the kingdom of God was walled off. It was impossible for you But you were washed. And those are passive verbs. That means you received the action. God washed you. You didn't go take a bath. You get it? You didn't go take a bath. God washed you. You were sanctified. You didn't sanctify yourself. 
He not only washed you, He sanctified you. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'll tell you what, in preparing for these messages, I realized, I look back over 61 years and I realized a lot of places I stole. I never walked in and shoplifted, but I stole in other ways. I never robbed a bank, but I stole in other ways. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, do not leave without looking to the one who washes, without looking to the one who sanctifies, without looking to the one, without embracing the one who justifies.